You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Tribble Toys. Visit TribbleToys.com and sign up for the newsletter to hear about monthly specials and discounts. That's TribbleToys.com to sign up today. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 508, Scientific Method. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we coolly, methodically examine an episode of Star Trek, exploring the morals, meanings, and messages, and then submit it for peer review in the hope of making us all more informed Star Trek viewers. This week, Scientific Method, the one where Voyager is crawling with scientists. Well, they always are. But this time, there are uninvited scientists, the bad kind, and the Voyager crew has to either science their way out of predicament or use brute force to make them leave. I wonder which one we'll get. I'll be right back with trivia after a few words on how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now here is John Champion with this week's head-splitting trivia. All right, well, the story credit on Scientific Method goes to Harry Clore and Sherry Klein. And you may remember that in the previous episode, The Raven, we had a story credit by Harry, and now he's back again with a concept originally titled Tagged that he co-wrote with Sherry. And this is her only professional writing credit in TV or film, but Harry will be back with one more story credit on Voyager in the next season. As is often the case with a purchase story concept, though, the teleplay actually goes to a known member of the staff, and this time around, it's Lisa Klink who gets the credit. Interestingly, Jerry Taylor didn't seem to have too much faith in the episode in the early stages, but she changed her mind once it was starting to film. And I bet a bit of that credit goes to our returning champion, David Livingston, as director, who we haven't had as a director actually yet in this season. In fact, his prior Voyager credit was in the wrap-up of season three with the episode Scorpion. And as the director with the most Star Trek under his belt, naturally, he will be back for more. Let's meet our guest stars. We spend the most time in this episode with two of the alien interlopers whose names are never spoken on screen. It's true. Neither their names nor even their species gets any airtime. But fortunately, the script actually does contain those details, along with the description that they are androgynous. The species that puts Voyager's crew under the microscope are called the Srivani, and the two who have names are Takar, played by Annette Held, and her superior, Alzen, played by Rosemary Forsyth. 
Annette has a long career on stage, and we've seen her on Star Trek in multiple guest roles prior to this one. She was a Romulan diplomat in the DS9 episode Visionary, and then later in the series, she appeared as Lieutenant Nadia Larkin in The Siege of AR-558. A slight detour took her to the movie Star Trek First Contact, where she played an assimilated Enterprise security officer, and in addition to that, she turns up again in a Star Trek property as Illyria in the video game Star Trek Klingon from 1996. Finally, Rosemary Forsyth, as the stern lead scientist, got her start as a model in Montreal where she grew up. A number of commercials and TV guest appearances followed, starting in 1963 with a recurring role on the daytime soap opera The Doctors. Soaps would be a large part of her later career, too, as Rosemary appeared in multiple episodes of Santa Barbara and General Hospital, and in an impressive run of more than 300 episodes of Days of Our Lives in the late 70s. Rosemary even appears in the 1971 TV movie intended as a pilot for Irwin Allen's City Beneath the Sea. You can hear more about that in the Sci-Fi 5 archive. She continued to make the rounds on TV shows in the 80s and beyond, with stops on Remington Steel, JAG, Simon & Simon, Dallas, and Magnum P.I. That one's for you, Norm. Feature films pack her resume even further with notable roles in Disclosure, Ghosts of Mars, and many others. So far, this is Rosemary's only Star Trek appearance. <laughs> Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. Do you ever have that pain right between your eyes? If so, I have bad news for you. Prologue. Bolana is crawling through a Jeffries tube to investigate a problem her engineering crew is having with her current warp core diagnostic. She's surprised to run into Seven of Nine, who has tapped into an energy conduit, which Bolana now knows is the source of her diagnostic problem. Bolana chastises Seven for not working as a team player, but she also remembers and, surprisingly to her, recites a speech Captain Janeway gave her about also learning to be more of a team player and not an outsider. Seven, understanding Bolana's point, apologizes, which is something new to her Borg sensibilities, and the two reconcile their differences. Meanwhile, Tom Paris excuses himself from his light duties in sickbay. Well, to be blunt, he lies to the doctor about having to turn in a con report to Chakotay. However, it turns out that he needed some time with the replicator so that he could formulate a bouquet of flowers and an apology, which, using site-to-site transport, he delivers to Balana in an isolated corridor. As the two steal a private moment for themselves, Balana shudders as she feels like someone else is in the corridor watching them. And even though they cannot see anyone else nearby, what she feels is actually some type of anatomical scan, which studies the both of them invasively right down to the skeletal level. Act 1. In her quarters, Captain Janeway is suffering from not only an incredibly painful headache, akin to hot needles being driven into her skull, but also from a less-than-stress-relieving massage at the hands of the doctor. Chakotay hails her with news of the energy readings they have been tracking, and after changing into more suitable attire, she arrives on the bridge to see two binary pulsars shining brightly on the viewing screen. Chakotay is fascinated by this scientific find and wants to discuss certain protocols about safely studying the pulsars, but Janeway's headache is too distracting and she leaves Chakotay in charge of the particulars. 
Later in engineering, Tom and Bellana abscond to her workstation above on the second level. And while embroiled in a passionate embrace, Tuvok arrives to deliver data that Bellana requested, thinking that it would have taken Tuvok a bit longer to compile. After Tuvok leaves, after interrupting what Tom and Bellana believe was an embarrassing situation, Tom chases after Tuvok in the hallway, wondering if the security chief is going to mention anything to the captain about his and Bellana's conduct. Tuvok assures him that he will in no way be dishonest about their indiscretion. Prior to attending Chakotay's briefing on the Pulsar data collection protocols, Tom and Bellana discussed that their recent public displays of affection may need to be less, well, public. And after Chakotay's briefing, a very obviously aggravated Captain Janeway expresses her grave disappointment with Tom and Bellana's recent adolescent behavior and poor conduct unbecoming of her most senior officers. That evening, Chakotay is up late, working on his data analysis plans. However, after replicating a cup of hot coffee, he too suffers an invasive scan just like Tom and Bellana did earlier, causing Chakotay to feel instantly queasy. He races to his bathroom sink, where after splashing his face with water, he notices that some hair has fallen out, and to his horror, he passes his hand over his head as a large swath of hair falls from his scalp. Act 2 in sickbay, Chakotay appears to have aged considerably. His hair is gone, and his facial features resemble that of a man decades older than he should be. The doctor confirms that Chakotay's DNA has been hyperstimulated, but is puzzled as to how, or why, or by whom. And at the same bewilderment applies to Janeway's consistent headaches for which the doctor has no answers. He believes setting up an electron resonance scanner in the science lab may provide the DNA-based evidence he needs to discover what is happening. In the mess hall, Harry is giving Tom a much-deserved ribbing about his current relationship woes, especially Janeway's chewing out of his and Bellana's more than obvious and amorous relationship. However, after giving Neelix their breakfast orders just as soon as he left towards the back of his galley to prepare the meals, Neelix falls in pain and begins convulsing on the floor. After immediately being whisked to sickbay, Neelix notices that he's now covered with spots and remarks that his complexion now outwardly resembles Mylian physiology, a race similar to Talaxians to which his great-grandfather belonged, which explains that DNA in Neelix's system. The doctor is still puzzled as to why these DNA mutations are all of a sudden manifesting themselves and so differently. He needs answers, and fast, because more affected crewmen arrive, forcing the doctor to discharge Neelix and Chakotay to convalesce in their quarters. Unless he can find a solution, the doctor knows that sickbay is going to need the empty beds. In the science lab, Bellana and the doctor fire up their newly calibrated electron microscope. While analyzing Chakotay's DNA, the doctor finds what appears to be some kind of genetic marker, which to Bellana looks like a barcode or a tag of some kind. Just then... The doctor begins to flicker. Bellana checks his emitter and believes someone is trying to delete him. But before she can act, Bellana screams and collapses. The doctor tries to contact the bridge for help, but he disappears and his emitter falls to the floor next to Bellana's body. Act 3. With the doctor deactivated and Bellana lying unconscious on a biobed, Tom Paris is currently in charge of a very full sick bay. He tells Janeway, Harry, and Seven that Bellana's lungs have stopped processing oxygen, which caused her collapse. Harry confirms that Bellana tried to transfer the doctor back to sickbay, but without him being present, obviously something went wrong. Janeway's headache is leaving her at a severe disadvantage, distracting her all the while. 
During all of this, Seven is contacted by the doctor, who only she can hear through his specific comm signal dialed directly into her Borg audio implants. He tells her to find a way to meet him in the Da Vinci Hollow program for further instructions. Stealing herself away under the pretense of fixing the electron scanner, Seven meets with the doctor as requested. He is hiding the Da Vinci program and wasn't deleted, as some have believed. The doctor shares a theory with Seven. He thinks that there is an unseen force at work that is directly affecting the crew. And, after teching Seven's visual tech, the doctor has now given her the ability to see those who may be inhabiting a different level of interphasic space, allowing them to exist unseen to the naked eye, until now. Seven scans the holodeck and finds no such intruder. Her mission, should she choose to accept it, is to search the remainder of Voyager and find who is responsible for what is happening to the rest of the crew. And, as soon as Seven leaves the holodeck to scan the remaining 256 rooms within Voyager, she immediately discovers that alien beings are perpetrating experiments upon the crew in a variety of bizarre and grotesque ways. And even though she knows she's being followed, Seven remains calm, enters a turbo lift to evade the invisible intruder, and is not only closely followed, but violated as well, watching and enduring the alien insert a probe-type device into her upper torso. Making her way to the mess hall, Seven sees even more of the crew afflicted, yet unaware, as she slips behind Neelix's galley, pretends to pour herself a cup of coffee, and escapes undetected to report her findings to Captain Janeway, who is in her ready room and suffering at her wit's end. She lays into Tuvok about the crew's lack of discipline and lackadaisical attitude of late, but Tuvok knows the captain too well, and in turn knows she is not herself. All he can do is be a comforting shoulder for her to lean on. When Seven arrives in Janeway's ready room, she is taken aback by seeing two aliens literally shoving what look like giant needles into the captain's skull. No doubt the cause of Janeway's crippling headaches. As to not alert the alien's suspicions, Seven carefully dismisses herself to report her findings to the doctor. Act 4. Back in the Da Vinci simulation, Seven reports her findings. At least 56 aliens have infiltrated Voyager undetected and are performing experiments in the crew from the realm of interphasic space. The doctor believes that if they can't stop what's happening, that these mutagenic experiments will become fatal and soon. Seven believes that modified phasers would be able to decloak the aliens, but might put the crew in harm's way once they are threatened. The doctor thinks that a shipwide, albeit incredibly painful, neuroleptic shock would neutralize the aliens and reduce retaliation upon the crew. All Seven has to do is overload an EPS relay to produce the reaction they need for their plan to work. That, and doing so inconspicuously as to not arouse suspicion. The aliens have no idea why she's tinkering around in engineering, but Tuvok's internal tactical relays know better as he contacts her to stop her unauthorized modifications. When Tuvok arrives on the scene, he orders Seven to stand down. However, she has no time to explain her actions and disarms Tuvok, steals his phaser, makes a slight adjustment, and fires at one of the three invisible aliens bearing down on them, proving to Tuvok without question that there are intruders aboard. Seven threatens to kill her captive if she doesn't stand down and surrender. And that's Borg, for resistance is futile. Later, Captain Janeway meets with the alien leader in the brig. Janeway wants to know who she is and why these mutations are being performed on her crew. However, where Janeway believes these experiments are violations and without consent, the alien leader expresses her belief that she and her kind aboard the ship are merely scientists whose experiments are done to forward their understanding of helping prolong and protect life, namely their own. But she's willing to share her data to perhaps provide answers for Janeway to protect the health and well-being of her own crew.
Janeway believes the alien's tactics are barbaric. The alien believes she's in the right, and that those who have benefited from her scientific method also believe she's in the right. Janeway promises the lab rats will fight back, but the alien leader is unmoved and declares the experiments will continue, and if they meet any interference, the crew will be summarily terminated. Act 5. Even with their combined experience in dealing with alien incursions, Janeway, Seven, Tuvok, and the Doctor are running out of options and running out of time. As they deliberate in Janeway's ready room, outside on the bridge, a crewman screams out in agony and falls to the floor convulsing. The Doctor and Janeway rush out to save her, but it is too late, no matter Janeway's conviction, to save her. The Doctor believes that the slain crew member suffered catastrophic high blood pressure due to her specific genetic experiment. To the captain, this was the last straw. She orders Voyager to head straight into the crushing gravitational forces of the twin pulsars. Realizing what Janeway is doing, another of the alien leaders materializes on the bridge, warning Janeway that her decision to destroy the ship is a bluff that the aliens will call. Janeway assures her enemy that this is no bluff and has locked out all controls to Voyager so that their course towards the pulsars cannot be altered. As Voyager approaches the outer limits of the pulsars, her structure buckles under the increased gravitational changes, and Tuvok informs Janeway that they might have a 1 in 20 chance of surviving this. Janeway orders Voyager to maintain course and speed, proving once and for all to the alien intruders that if Voyager's crew is to be sacrificed, it will be at her orders and not at the hands of alien experiments. Suddenly, as Voyager's outer hull superheats, two smaller ships appear as one detaches while the other explodes. With the aliens in retreat, Janeway and the bridge crew miraculously barrel ahead at full speed through the crushing gravitational currents of the pulsars and into much calmer space. The crisis for now is over. Speaking of crisis, Tom and Bolana, who are trying to enjoy a private evening all to themselves, take off their comm badges and chew off Harry so that they can enjoy a crisis-free evening, wondering, albeit jokingly, if the reason why they became attracted to each other in the first place was just all part of a greater alien experiment. The end. Nicely done, Norman. Love the recap. Uh, so let's get right into it. Right at the start, right in the prologue, right the teaser part of the show. Seven, I, I, I really like this setup because I like the idea of just like Seven acting completely autonomously and not caring at all what anybody else thinks about what she's doing. Just taking what she needs, not asking permission. And that just feels very true to her character. Um, and also what feels very true to character is Bolana just getting very worked up about it <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and not being able to maintain her cool at all. But uh, we, we have this nice little – there are all these little like – teachable moments in there. So even for Bolana calling her out and Bolana referring to her own struggle, like her own uh, uh, trouble, you know, assimilating with the crew. So nice moments all around. You know what I liked about that scene also mm -hmm. is the, not too long ago, there was an instance between Bolana and Seven where she asked Seven, like, don't you have any remorse for the people that you killed? You know, the, the, the species mm. that you assimilated. And yeah. Seven just completely kind of just shined that along. Mm -hmm. But now... You're seeing, again, like you said, these learning moments and mm -hmm. and Seven developing as a character. I thought that was really nice. A nice beat to continue that, that particular thread in her arc. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the little uh, the beam in with the flowers. I, I thought that was clever. But isn't that using up a replicator ration? 
Like, is it, is that okay to do? Just like, oh, not, yeah, like it's hard to get, you know, a steak and mashed potatoes if you want to mm-hmm. have that replicated. But flowers? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can just do that and then just beam myself around, which I think would probably trigger some kind of, you know, alert. You would think. Like, so yeah. this whole thing with site-to-site transport, I have kind of like nit to pick with that. But mm-hmm. aside from that, so – Tom, he, he replicates his flowers, which takes mm-hmm. a ration, like you said. And then does he does he lay down on the ground? <laughs> right. Well, right, yeah, because he, he lands. Is he in prone he position? In, yeah, kind of leaning in. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and then, okay, I know this is nitpicking Star Trek stuff, but that's what we do, right? If you're yeah. going to put it on screen, you're going to have people that ask questions like us. So right. he beams into that corridor, but his hand's sticking out with flowers through a porthole or through a walkway hole. Yeah. Yeah. How does that, I know. <laughs> how does that work? Right? That's, that's some really clever transporter effect. I guess. Know. Yeah, I guess. So. Um, really liked It's inappropriate to call it an x-ray, but I really liked the, uh, that that odd like almost you know CT scan uh, MRI thing of mm-hmm. our characters of Tama Balana in that case and we get to see more later I thought that was really nicely done it's like predator vision you know, yeah like right the heat yeah. map index of their bodies mm-hmm. um, and I also felt like okay when when Balana says I feel like someone's watching us I'm a kid <laughs> of the eighties you're a kid of the eighties yeah many of you are kids of the eighties so you yeah. have Rockwell's somebody watching me not Rockwell rent free in your head. Special right. guest Michael Jackson on that track. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. One thing we haven't seen before, I don't think, and that is a uh, space massage. Now, there has – look, I do realize that Deanna Troy was getting a uh, foot massage and that very weird, you know, coming back from the break, whatever episode that was of TNG, no letters. <laughs> but but this, this is more of just a straight up, like, we're going to use our technology. We got the EMH, and, uh, of course, he is programmed – in how to give a great massage. But there was a very entertaining scene all around. But was that a great massage? I mean, she... I know that Kate was playing it off for, like, humor, but yeah. the expressions, just the, the the nuances that she was giving us, it looked like it was not great. And sometimes, <laughs> look, sometimes that massage, you, you know, work through that pain, and then, That's true. then you're better on the other side, you know? That's yeah. true. Yeah. But um, speaking of Kate's nuances, like, the whole mm-hmm. thing with the... Like her dialogue saying that she has like needles, hot needles, like, you know, been driven into her skull. Yes. Not only is that effective writing, but it's also effective foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really, really smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and what a reveal, you know, <laughs> later yeah. on when you get to it. All right, Tom Bellana, yeah, I mean, get, get a room. And, and there are plenty of rooms on the ship. We learn 257 rooms later mm. in the episode. But I, I do wonder, though, like, what is the layout of that upper deck of engineering? Because she says, like, we need to go up to my console. They go up there, and the Tuvok, like, walks in on top of the console. <laughs> like, that's a really weird layout. I kind of want to go check out that set now. The same thing we said about other instances like where i don't know people get into a fight or a struggle and and depending on their relationship it might be the exact same thing between tom and balana because she's klingon and we've already mentioned that before in other episodes yeah about her amorousness yeah uh, but you saw them clearly push a ton of buttons oh when yeah they were fooling about yeah. exactly what beating. happened I know. Right, right. Oh, we just, we ejected the warp core. Oops. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All of that stuff in the scenes right after that, pretty entertaining, like Tom trying to cover with Tuvok and of course Tuvok not having it. Janeway's irritation with Tom and Balana. I mean, the, the, the way that Kate Mulgrew just builds her irritation throughout the episode is terrific. 
And that yeah. little hint of it that we get there, really nice. Not even a that hint. Scene, that scene, though, is going to be discussed at length. Oh, good. Okay. I, I promise you. Okay. I look forward to it. <laughs> I look forward to it. Uh, and then we cut to Chakotay's quarters, and he's uh, uh, you know, up doing stuff. And then he asks the replicator to make a uh, hot black coffee. Yeah. And then you you cut to the the weird kind of X-ray vision thing of him just guzzling that down. Just right. if it's hot, I mean, and he's just like pouring it down his throat, just not even sipping at all. That that looked a little like wow. He must have you know asbestos esophagus. And then you cut to one of my favorite things: space sink. That is definitely what? yeah. That is What's definitely that a sink. Glass rocks. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's whatever makes spacey. And it is very spacey. <laughs> and then this very effective, weird shot of his hair falling out in a strip. Yeah. That was kind of wild, right? I mean, it's all, all of a sudden, like, all his follicles just died? Yeah. Like, in that one spot, just boom, yeah. gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was interesting. I, I thought, you know, the effect was obviously pretty creepy. And it's funny because, like, Brandon didn't write nor direct this. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. But and that's very like a Brandon very Braga kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Maybe he had his influence in, in that little mm-hmm. bit there. Then we get to sick bay. And, yes, progeria, a real thing. Interesting to hear, a, you know, a real medical diagnosis called out there, even though that is not the diagnosis for Chakotay. And the makeup on Chakotay here is interesting. The, the the old age effects, uh, I, I feel like at certain angles looks pretty good and creepy and weird. But then if he turns his head to the side and you see where the makeup kind of gets lumped up in the back, like the, yeah. the bald wig and all that. But then you see the, the rest of the tattoo, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. But I, I just feel like, you know, the, the depth at which his eyes are sunken in, he, he doesn't look human anymore. And I know he's supposed to be shocking that he has aged that fast, but there's something really odd about that makeup. It's like the Skeletor makeup in Masters of the Universe where yeah. you have to put like the recesses of like the eye cavities and the sunken cheeks on top of somebody's face, which right. just adds more. So you have to build up. Yeah, yeah. you have to build up instead of sh- shrinking down yeah. so it doesn't have that yeah. gaunt appearance that it's supposed to have. Right. But I have a question about the tattoo. So this is the first time we've seen the tattoo in its entirety. Right. Does that mean that at one point in time he shaved his head or at least the side of his head to have that entire tattoo applied? Because it goes past his temple over his ear and towards the back of his skull. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that he had to have at least shaved off that part of it for that. Yeah, kind of cool. That's a whole new Chakotay cosplay. (laughs) Yes, yes. I have to say, Kate's consistency with the headache pain is very good. I mean, you can tell that she is just... A couple of degrees off center, like every single scene. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the you physicality know. of that is great, too. Like everything, yeah. just the look in her eyes and the hair is a little messed up and just her, her body language, her walk. Like she really embodies that very well yeah. in this. Mm-hmm. A little tour through uh, Neelix's mess hall in the kitchen there. He's got a, a bowl of eggplants on the counter for some reason. Yeah. And then, he, then he's whisking up some eggs and then kind of looked in the background, looked like just a big bowl of ginger, rather. Mm-hmm. And then, then you cut to the floor. And when he falls, uh, got bok choy and acorn. And squash taking the tumble with him. Isn't um, ginger kind of like our substitute for Loyola root? Aren't oh, yeah, like yeah, I think look? it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you're right. So here's a question, John. You both, both you and I are, are well versed and trained in the culinary arts. Oh, yeah. I, I say that patting myself on the back explicitly. 
patting you on the back too. <laughs> very good, very good. Thank you. I feel it. Could Neelix get a bigger whisk in this scene? It was a very large whisk. It's an oar, is yeah. what it is. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. It's a, yeah. You know, and also Neelix for being the culinary expert that you are. That's not how you use a whisk. No. No. You know, no. You, you might as well just help. get a giant fork. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that he doesn't know how to do in the kitchen quite clearly. Now, now his makeup is very interesting to do that uh, spotted look. I, because, of course, we don't know exactly what a talaxium would look like to age older. But to introduce this idea that he is, what, one-eighth or one-sixteenth Mylian. But, and then that leads into, I think, a funny scene, which is just like two old guys in sickbay comparing their medical problems. <laughs> you know, yeah. just him and Chakotay. It was nice. I think every fandom has their what I'd like to call the scene as the Jaws comparing your scars scene. Oh yeah, because this had yeah, a lot yeah, yeah, of that yeah. energy, like with like Quint and Hooper and Hoopa, yes, you know, and Brody, yes. like talking about like how they got you know eaten by you know, like an eel or like busted my arm or yeah. marry something so other like broke my heart. You know, yeah. So. I do like the DNA animation when we reveal that little the the tag. You know, hence the uh, the original title of the episode, <laughs> the barcode. Uh, <laughs> The barcode, and that's how it's described in the script too. Yeah. Is it, it said, you know, an alien marker, and then I think it says in there, sort of like a barcode. So mm-hmm. they they were specific about that. Although, you know, I, I always wonder about these things about how exactly the EMH program is integrated into the rest of the ship's computers and equipment, because I kept thinking, well, would the doctor actually need to look? through the eyepiece of a microscope, that microscope is a camera. So couldn't the computer literally just send that image directly into his knowledge matrix so he's got it? And not only has specifically what he's looking for, but literally all of it all at once. But, you know, that's just my continued uh, interesting confusion about the doctor. I kind of like reacted the same way. Like, couldn't he just reprogram his eyes to be their own electron microscope? Boom. There you go. Yes. Yes. I mean, I I do wish that somewhere along the line, like somewhere establishing kind of like his base history that the doctor, he can't be reprogrammed or be advanced in a way that like can't be done. It just can't be done so that you're limited. Like he has basic limitations, even advanced as he is. Um, and now he has the 29th century, you know, the, the emitter. And like, well, you'd think that'd be able to give him some superpowers or something. That's a good point. Like, in addition to just allowing him to be mobile, does that technology have any effect on his other technological aspects? You, you might think, think that it would. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought the science lab was a cool set. I thought it looked like a TARDIS, to be honest with you. It does look like you know? a TARDIS. A TARDIS designed yeah. by Herman Zimmern, which is yeah. amazing. By yes. The way. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to the um, mobile emitter, though. So mm-hmm. when the doctor, he, he kneels down in front of Bellana when Bellana collapses, taps his communicator, asks, calls for help, and then he phases out. And then his mobile emitter falls. Yeah. But his communicator doesn't fall. Oh, man. See, now we're back to Odo territory. Yeah. Where, where, like, like right. every time Odo transforms into something, but the communicator badge, it isn't there anymore. So was the communicator badge just made up of more Odo goo. So in this case, is the communicator badge just a projection that is then integrated into ship systems the way the other communicator badges are? And if so, then yes. why can't he become his own electron microscope? 
<laughs> See? Exactly. <laughs> That's all we ask is that the doctor become his own electron microscope. Yes. Yeah. Now, I thought it was an interesting choice. It is Seven the only person that the doctor could contact in that way. He's using her Borg implant to do that, which is a very cool conceit. But like, could he or would he have tried to get that message through on a secured comm channel to Janeway or to somebody else? Because he doesn't know who's compromised at True. that point. You know, he doesn't right. know who's standing there because he doesn't know that those beings are around yet. And I wondered to myself, what if this episode had been written prior to Seven of Nine being there? You would have to come up with a way for him to reach somebody that then isn't under alien influence, or at least not at that moment. I did have to freeze there on the drawing that the doctor is doing in the holodeck because it was way more modern, just kind of strange, certainly than what would have been acceptable or common at a Renaissance art class. And I wondered, is it because he is so iconoclastic that he's doing something much more interpretive? Or is it just to say that he's a bad artist? Which, And by the uh, way, I don't think that yeah. was bad at all. I thought it was very cool. But is it like supposed to indicate something to you about him? I mean, it was really borderline cubism for me. You yeah. Know, if you're yeah, looking at yeah, the yeah. style, you know, it yeah. was kind of like this almost like a brutalist type of cubism. You know, we're going mm -hmm. into, you know, obviously a Picasso and Dolly t territory with yeah. that kind of interpretation. But yeah, you would think for the doctor, he would have been sketching out. In, in the movie Ever After, there's a, a wonderful illustration of Drew Barrymore done as Cinderella a la Da Vinci. And it would be mm. kind of like that type of style where mm -hmm. he would, of course, be drawing the Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. Of course he would be, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so. yeah. I do love any moment that the holodeck automatically integrates 24th century technology into whatever period object exists in the simulation. Brilliant. I love it just opens up the art desk and there's all the stuff that he needs and the little uh, the bit with the, the bucket. I mean, so good. Yeah. So. We both like that. The, the contrast in those textures, kind of like the ancient yeah. and the modern, like extreme ancient and extreme modern. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it was wonderful. And, and whenever Janeway was in that weird, you know, 19th century manor house simulation, but you mm -hmm. could open up a wooden panel and then like there's holodeck guts. You know, you love that. Scene. I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's so good because it, it assumes that the computer knows to do that. But it also assumes that the people playing the simulation know to look for it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not like walking around a manor house, like opening up every cupboard saying, uh, is the panel in here? Is yeah. The right. Console in here. Is the right. control room in here? Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Love the uh, medical contraptions on the crew members. Creepy, awesome, very cool looking. Yeah, I like how when we switch to the Seven's Borg view, how you get to see like all of those people like hovering over over the other crew members with the experiments and stuff like that, with like the different lights and the different headgear. A lot of headgear going mm -hmm. on. On timestamp, twenty six minutes sixteen seconds. So, I ask you this question. Ask the audience this question. So does the future still use Starbucks types of coffee carafes? You know, the ones that either oh. dispense coffee or dispense their creamers, especially? Right. Yeah. Because that's exactly the product that Seven picks up in the back of Neelix's gallery before she sneaks off to go see yes, Janeway. Yes, that's so right. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And that was a kind of a natural it, it was interesting of Seven to choose that behavior to cover for what she's doing. Because I wonder, compared to in weeks previous, is Seven now getting more comfortable with just like 
popping into the mess hall to have a drink of coffee. Because remember, right. having real food was a big deal not that long ago. Um, again, can't reiterate enough, Janeway's so good when she's irritated. And I love this little exchange. You know, people have been getting a little too comfortable around here. So, like, what what's the answer to that? <laughs> like, we need to make people uncomfortable. And Tuvok says it. Well, shall, shall I flog them as well? <laughs> Perfect exchange for them. And by the way, here we are in Act 3, and I love that we don't see the aliens until Act 3. And Voyager, I think, has been really experimental and done some nice things with changing the regular pacing of what we get in a Star Trek episode. You know, very boldly starting episodes where you just you don't even see Voyager until Act 3. So uh, th- this was nice to have a reveal of the aliens that really counted. I really did love the way that Tuvok was kind of caring and tender to Janeway. We've been missing that. Yes. Without being, without betraying his Vulcanness. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Seven observes 56 aliens. A little surprised. I was a little sure it would be 47. I was disappointed that it wasn't, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we haven't had a 47 reference in, I think, a while. It's been a little I while. Think. Yeah. 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 I love the uh, whole uh, conceit of like Seven's Borg vision, and I know why they did it so that you can show the uh, you know the aliens experimenting on the crew. But the big thing is, how much do you think uh, blocking or practicing did it take for all those crew members, and then all those aliens that were hovering over those crew members? You know, those actors, you know, execute their scene without tripping over each other. Yeah, there's a lot of commotion going on in yeah. those scenes. It was really effective, but and yeah, a lot of good movement there. So yeah. Uh, you know, hats off to David Livingston for getting all that stuff to look great on camera. It, it took Tuvok no time, by the way, to get to engineering from the bridge, right? He should move like that all the time. <laughs> Whenever there's something else happening on the ship, it's like, oh, there's a security issue on deck seven, and it takes like 10 minutes to get there, and the like, you know, the security thing is now passed, and Seven has stolen a shuttle or whatever, you know, uh, because th- this time is just like seven of nine. Stop what you're doing. And then, boom, he's there with a phaser. He's there twice immediately in yeah. this episode. He's there to walk in on Balana to mm-hmm. give her something and to stop seven after basically saying, I'm on the bridge. Do not do anything until I get to engineering. And yeah. I'm there. Right? Yeah. Must be that site to site transport thing. Yes. Yes. Oh, man. That look on Janeway when she enters the brig, I mean, peak angry Janeway, do not mess with her. Love that moment. And what a great line. The lab rats are fighting back. I mean, just the the whole scene is so good. And and Mm -hmm. to have her in there in the brig, it's this little shade of like a Hannibal Lecter thing with the, the clash of wills in the jail cell. I thought that was all really nice and then uh, as we start to wrap it up everybody's standing around with seven pretty confident that none of the aliens are around i i I wondered like could seven just reach over and pull one of those needles out of janeway's skull because she's like janeway's there seven's there seven's the only one who can see if the aliens are around could she like start to fix that go hey you got a big uh contraption on your head let me let me get that off can i do the actually thing yeah, please, so please. She, um, I'm sliding my finger up to my glasses, pushing yes. my glasses back. Love and it. Actually, yeah. 
She couldn't because those aliens and their technology still exist in interphasic space until she fires their phaser to decloak them out of interphasic space. Okay, so she can see them, right. but there's still no – it's like a ghost image. Can't, can't exactly. actually interact. Okay, all right, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing, and then yeah. I actually did myself. So. <laughs> nice. Um, but speaking of that, I, I, I know that uh, – I asked myself the same question. Like, why couldn't she just – basically go to the armory and reprogram all the phaser rifles so that yes. you could shoot wide beams. But like the doctor said, you could maybe take out a couple of them, but then their yeah. red alert would go off and they would start killing hostages. So, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, that's no good. We don't want that. Mm-mm. And, you know, things keep getting darker and darker. I mean, kill an unknown crew person on the bridge, uh, keep, you know, thinning out Voyager's numbers there. And, man, Janeway just... She is just determined to destroy Voyager whenever she's up against a wall. I mean, but I, I do love her resolve. I love the focus on her during this whole sequence because, I mean, dopamine is a hell of a drug. And, and that, that whole sequence just plays – it is a blast. Oh, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as, as much as I love that comment, yeah. I actually found that entire scene to be sp- – Problematic, really? I, a problematic yeah. in general, or just because of how it reflects on Janeway, or what? Tropishly problematic. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. And yeah. Uh, if you want to hear my reasons, then you're just going to have to subscribe to Patreon because that's part of my okay. value-added material rent that the we only offer to the uncut version of this particular recording. Vam of the week. I love it. That's All right. right. I, I look forward to hearing you take me to task on that. Binary Pulsar effects, great. Thought yep. those were yep. so cool. And how, how lucky, how lucky for them that they can just go through it. And they all lived. They had a one in 20 chance of that. Say it isn't so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess, like, again, the tropish part of this being Star Trek is the captain risks everyone's lives and everyone makes it out in the end. And if, you know, if there wasn't some aging, doddering old, you know, first officer to stop her, then I guess he would have. Oh, my God. Wait, what are we going to do with Ch- Chakotay? Do they just, did, wait, can they put him in a transporter and make him young again? If you've been banned from using the Turbolift as your makeout spot, please do not do that in the computer core either. My processors can't handle that. We'll get right back to Scientific Method after a word from this week's sponsor, Tribble Toys. In 1967, science fiction history was made by writer David Gerald, who introduced the world, nay, the galaxy, to the word tribbles. And everyone fell in love with those furry fiends. I mean, friends, furry (laughs) friends. (laughs) It it depends on your perspective, right? They're friends unless you're a Klingon, right? True. Exactly. Exactly. Now, many years later, in 2008... David co-founded Tribble Toys, the only Tribbles personally approved by David himself. And who doesn't want a personally approved Tribble? I I don't want an unapproved Tribble. Well, Klingons don't want personally or unpersonally approved Tribbles, period. Uh, We all know this. (laughs) 
Now, yes. since then, since 2008, Tribble Toys has placed over 125,000 Tribbles in forever homes. Now, that's oh. one Tribble with an average litter of 10 multiplied by, <laughs> you know the math, you know the math, people, right? I, I just like that we're breaking a feel-good story here about all those Tribbles going to forever homes. That, that, that's what you want to hear. I right. wonder if uh, those tribbles come with you know how like some of the like, very priceless collectibles come with those silica gel packs just to make sure that they stay fresh. What yes. if they yeah. had a trace of Quadro triticale in each one of those packs? They should. You know, there's a beer called Quadro triticale. I don't know if they go for that, but if they don't, their human caretakers can certainly have sit themselves. That's another show. That's another show, and hopefully yeah. another sponsor. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you know, John, that there are also twenty different triple breeds available? That's a lot of triples. Yeah. Yes. Anyone who's a fan of Star Trek, either a serious fan, a hardcore fan, or just a casual fan, you know that Tribbles come in all shapes and sizes. They're small, they're large, they're ping pong size, they're watermelon size, they stick to the size of walls, they get into your coffee cup and chicken soup. <laughs> there are, they're beloved because I think that they're probably one of the most unique, iconic, non-humanoid creatures like probably ever to grace the screen of Star Trek everywhere. I think you're right. I, that episode is iconic for a reason, and the Tribbles are so well-remembered and so beloved by audiences everywhere. I love it, Norman. We'll be able to go to conventions, and we get to go to the Tribble Toys booth, and you're just sort of overwhelmed by the variety, the colors, the sizes. They're just fun, and if you go to TribbleToys.com, you get to see the whole range of Tribbles that they make, and I particularly like the one that I have that has the little motorized little chirping sound, so you toss it at somebody and they aren't expecting it and it starts to purr, they're great. They're, they're so much fun. And of course, there's the classic original Tribble for all of you fans. But how about this? You know, you and I are talking about Star Trek Voyager. You and I are both fans of Seven of Nine. And I think a lot of our audience are fans of Seven of Nine. And they probably watched Star Trek Picard. And then if they watch Star Trek Picard, they are probably familiar with the vicious genetically modified attack tribbles found at Section 31's top secret Daystrom station. I have to tell you, man, mm -hmm. when that came on and that attack tribble get, you know, attached itself to the, to the little window, the glass, I kind of I did the, the you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio meme and I'm like, I pointed at the screen and I was like, Tribble Toys needs to make that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And they did. And they did. And it, it's uh, adorable and terrifying. <laughs> or ter ter terrifyingly adorable. But look, you can adopt your very own attack Tribble if you dare. And they come in a fetchingly fair white or a diabolically deep black. So take a look at TribbleToys.com to find your favorite Tribble. And, you know, maybe you want that attack Tribble for yourself or as a, a questionable gift. <laughs> <laughs> Either in fetchingly fair or diabolically deep. Those are, yes. they're, they're wonderful and at the same time, uh, very appropriate for an attack Tribble. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. So if you want to get one of either color, visit TribbleToys.com and sign up for the newsletter to hear about monthly specials and discounts. That's TribbleToys.com to sign up today. So let's have a little talk about uh, appropriate workplace behavior in light of Tom and Bolana's expression 
of mm. their relationship. Like, I, I, I do appreciate, actually, that, that this was kind of a fun thing baked into the episode that there's like, uh, we don't know how long these aliens have been on Voyager. We know that it's longer than a week because I, I think somebody has to say weeks at some point. So this could have been happening for quite a while. And in the last few weeks, that's been the ramping up of Tom and Bellana's relationship. So it's a little bit of this like, well, was it them? Was it just us? And at the end of the day, does it really matter? Because here we are and we kind of like this. So we're going to explore it. Like, I think that all, as far as just the dramatic purposes go, I think that's fun. I think it's perfectly fine to land there. But I also think that for a ship that is 70,000 light years from home, <laughs> mm-hmm. we also maybe need to rethink what is appropriate or not on a starship with only 148 people on board. I can't remember if we're down to 147 now or after we lost that unnamed crewman on the bridge. Like, it is Janeway, I know that her emotions and her responses are a little ramped up because she is very uncomfortable throughout this episode. But, yeah, what, what do you think? Does Voyager need to reassess its policies on uh, interpersonal relationships? Because Janeway, look, I mean, Janeway's already been through it with uh, Chakotay, and they, they made that decision. We're going to come back, and we're just going to look at each other like none of this ever happened. Yeah, but who's going to chastise Janeway for making that decision? And I'm going to get to that specifically in in oh. what I have to say about okay. your question. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I'm glad we both see this the same. Well, I'm, you know, we see this. I'm not sure if we see this the exact same way, but I know that we see this as a discussion point for this episode. So I'm gonna I'm gonna answer your question here at the start with two examples of dialogue that I hope compare and contrast and maybe even juxtapose themselves. Yeah. So in this episode. Janeway says to Tom and Bellana, I just want to put everything into context. Yeah, yeah. You two have been making enough of a public display that half the ship is gossiping about it. You are senior officers, and I expect you to maintain the standard for the rest of the crew, but this adolescent behavior makes me question my faith in you both. If you choose to pursue a relationship, that's your business, but you consider yourselves under orders to use better judgment about it. Is that understood? Okay, so that's how she feels about them, clearly, right. with or without the headache. In this episode. <laughs> yeah. But let's go all the way from here in season four to midway through season two in Elogium. Mm-hmm. Okay. Chakotay says to Captain Janeway, this morning I interrupted a couple who were kissing in the turbo lift, and I've been wondering if we should establish a policy regarding fraternization. That, that's Janeway, where I called him the Sam the Eagle of Voyager. Yeah. Yeah. He's the stick in the mud. And Janeway yeah. says, well, the couple in question might be urged to show a bit more discretion, but Starfleet has always been reluctant to regulate people's personal lives. Chakotay says, of course, but we're in a unique situation here. The development of intimate relationships might cause us problems that wouldn't arise on other ships. And then Janeway says, I understand what you're saying, but we're a long way from home. Everyone is lonely, and we all, all we have is each other. I think eventually people will begin to pair off. You know, going to your question, 70,000 light years from home, no end, no returning home in sight. Are we going to be one way about the uh, attitudes towards relationships or are we going to be a little bit more sympathetic towards people who are going to help you become this generational ship that you believe you're going to become? Janeway even said we're going to have to do schools because we're going to have children. We're going to have to raise children with, you know, babies, education, hospitals, daycares, etc., we already got one child on board. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not exactly sure what's going on Maybe with Naomi. But that's the thing. It's like, 
what's the policy going to be? And then my bigger question, are we not past gossiping in the 24th century? <laughs> yeah. Well, right. I see also my rant about <laughs> Seven of Nine and Harry, you know, because it, it, it just diminishes both of those characters by letting them be the object of gossip. And th that was bad enough, particularly because of her situation. Here we have a couple of adults who work together. And again, like, yes, we, we get it that Janeway is influenced by these aliens, that she is not necessarily in her right mind here. But Janeway is somebody who has had a relationship with somebody on board this ship. And yes, as Captain's prerogative, it is okay for her to say, I'm going to remove myself from that situation because I don't want to affect either the crew's uh, trust or, or their impression or vision of me and my leadership. That's fine. That's fine. She can do that. But may I also refer our audience to shows like uh, – Oh, I don't know, Star Trek The Next Generation, where you had characters who were involved in relationships, and it was just not that big of a deal. You even had characters who were senior officers like Riker and Deanna Troy, who were, yeah, on again, off again, what is their deal exactly, how cool are they with each other seeing somebody else from time to time. Don't know. Don't know. You write a whole book or multiple books about that. Right. But it was never a thing that Captain Picard had to sit them down and say, like, you know, I don't want to see you holding hands ever. <laughs> you know, Picard always had this. Are they are they not with Beverly? Absolutely. The run, you know, now yeah. granted, but but you put Picard in a similar situation of Janeway where he can just decide like, yeah, you know what? I can't let this be part of my image here on board this ship while I'm in command. But you follow up on the rest of Star Trek history later, and you're like, oh, okay, well, they did have a thing. No, but I get oh, that. Yeah. I, I think the big thing is there's, I guess, the the procedure and the operations of a ship within the confines of Starfleet's influence. And then there's Voyager's specific case, yes. like you said, of being so far outside of the norm, of normal realm of their space or influence or just trying to increase, uh, increase their chances of survival by, I don't know, maybe allowing people to live these robust and, and fulfilled lives, increasing onboard ship morale, perhaps? Yeah. Well, because <laughs> it, it's, it's two different questions here about Tom and Bellana. Like, there's their own discomfort Say, oh, we shouldn't go into the meeting together. You go first. So I'll wait. No, but that looks more suspicious. Like, the fact that they would have to think about that mm -hmm. instead of just feeling empowered to be who they are and have the relationship they're going to have. That's one thing. Obviously, the stuff about the multiple public displays of affection where you're hitting buttons and engineering that might eject the warp core, that's another situation. And well, yes, yeah. you, you know, yeah. And, right. and you can have a Tuvok or a Janeway just say like, hey, you know, not, uh, you know, not in front of the ensigns. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, we, we have to take so much of this with a grain of salt because we are under alien influence, but it's still the reality of the characters. It, it's not like all of this is just made up and then gets kind of washed away for the next episode. The relationship continues. So, yeah, and they shouldn't feel embarrassed by that. But I wonder, but, you know, maybe it'll all be fine by the next episode. Well, I mean, the thing that I grapple with a lot with Star Trek, and um, I, I think that because, you know, we're in this, I don't know, this kind of, uh, this pressure cooker of a situation where you're trying to create this drama on a ship uh, artificially to 
you know, to create character arcs and storylines. Mm-hmm. I always feel that there's there are two realities that are happening. Uh, the reality of the Star Trek and evolved humanity that we want to believe in versus entertainment, the entertaining version of humanity that we see on Star Trek. For me, the evolved version of humanity that we believe in, that we're trying to aspire and achieve, mm-hmm. wouldn't care about these kind of these um, certain uh, behavioral pettinesses, you know, of gossip right. and and trying to involve yourself in other people's business. You know, you would think that they just we would have grown past that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being naive. But then there's also the whole, well, we're 90s writers writing for a 90s show, trying to make characters relatable in the 90s. So -hmm. we're going to create and and, and kind of like conflate this entirety of emotional beat drama so that these two characters who, in my opinion, still, and forgive me, folks, send me all the emails, but (laughs) I still don't believe that Tom and Bellana belong together. I think Uh, that they are so artificially uh forced together as a couple that you feel that when in on the relationship as the relationship progresses. It just doesn't feel natural. So yeah. maybe there is a point to the whole alien involvement in having them create an experiment, a lab rat experiment of these two who should never have gotten together to have gotten together. It makes sense so, to me. Okay, so do, do you want to go ahead and like retcon that for yourself, that, that this is the explanation for their relationship entirely? I mean, why not? I, okay. it, makes, it makes more sense than them just organically falling in love with each other, which has not been really established in a consistent and well-developed manner as in terms of just the, the narrative writing for those two characters. Harry yeah. and Bellana way better. And I've said that before. They just seem way more organic as friends that could have turned into a couple Then all of a sudden Tom mm. and Bellana's like, hey, I'm going to, I'm just in love with you now. Um, yeah, right. Right? Right. Right. Yeah, there is <laughs> there's a, a bit much of that. It makes for an interesting uh, how did you meet story, though, like everybody has their meet cute. Mm-hmm. And in this it's like, well, we, we were under alien influence and they were messing with our hormones and uh, they forced us together. But uh, we just went with it. <laughs> you know, let potion seven of nine. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Nice. Nicely done. Yeah. So uh, would you want to stick with that or you want to move on? Because I got, I got questions about our scientists, our, move on. Uh, our visiting scientists. Okay. Yeah, we, can, we can move on. Yeah. Uh, big, huge red flags uh, with the kind of scientific exploration being done by these creepy, weird aliens, these Srivani, if you remember from trivia. It, it does raise this kind of interesting discussion about not just the scientific method, but also about the ethics of experimentation. And that's a really interesting idea here that the Srivani just see us as something to be examined and experimented upon, even though they are aware that the Voyager crew are intelligent, communicating beings that have some grasp of technology. I mean, there is no ambiguity at all about them experiencing pain or potentially dying in the process of being experimented on and being aware of it. You know, Mm -hmm. they are aware of these things. And I think there is a very obvious parallel that we're meant to draw here in the way that human scientists have often crossed an ethical line by experimenting on other species, sometimes horrifically, and other times experimenting on other humans who were deemed lesser than. So Mm -hmm. there there is this very interesting real world. You know, there is no such thing as Srivani. So who do they represent? Well, I think we can draw those parallels. It, It is near impossible it is impossible to justify any of that and at the same time i think we all sort of draw our own ethical lines around what's acceptable or not you know do we benefit 
from the results of experimentation on animals. What we have mm. in the past, and now we have to behave more ethically going forward. Are there lines to be drawn between what is an acceptable or unacceptable experiment? Absolutely. But does that line change depending on the nature or the benefit of the research? Right. The Srivani are bad guys. Absolutely, 100%, no question. I still think it is a very interesting conversation that Janeway has to have with one who is trying to justify what they're doing. It's like, you would do the same thing. We are trying to make these breakthroughs in our own medical understanding. Well, we have had more sympathy, say, if they were like, and, and not uh, sympathy is not even the right word, but, but is that line easier to understand maybe if they're like the Vidians? where they are mm -hmm. just falling apart right in front of you. And the, and you understand that that is just a constant state of being for them. You know, that's a really good uh, series of questions that you, you pose here. And the thing is, I've had this conversation, I think, uh, in, in a lot of like science fiction fandoms regarding human morality. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not saying that you're, that I disagree with you. I'm just not going to, uh, you know, say that the the Zervani are bad. I can't say that. You know, mm -hmm. because for me, good, bad, moral, immoral, those are all human constructs. Sure. So going out there into space and being the audience that we are, watching things happen that we believe is against our own personal morality is done so because we've been trained as human beings either by either moral or religious law to be to believe that. Mm -hmm. But then you go out into space if we believe that this is going to happen. And then you experience all of these different sentient beings and they do what they do. It's kind of like the whole thing with if you go swimming with sharks and a shark eats you, do you blame the shark or do you blame the person for putting themselves in harm's way in front of the shark? Mm -hmm. Right? The shark is not evil. Yeah. The shark does what it has been designed by nature to do to feed. Yeah. Right? So it goes all the way back to things like the crystalline entity, the crystalline entity, by argument, by even Picard's own admission, was not evil. It yeah. was designed to do what it was designed to do by the, the virtue of being born that way, nature programming it to be that way. So these aliens, are they evil? Are they just, did Voyager just waltz into a situation which they were unprepared for, but just basically got caught in the shark's waters? Well, the, it, it, you know. let me push back just a little bit, because I think the thing with the Srivani is is revealed partly, again, in that scene in the brig with Janeway. As Janeway says, what you're doing isn't self-defense. It's the exploitation of another species for your own benefit. My people decided a long time ago that that was unacceptable, even in the name of scientific progress. But hang on. Here's what mm -hmm. Alzin says that they've been increasing Janeway's dopamine levels and stimulating, quote, aggressive impulses to test behavioral restraints. It's like, literally, we just want to see how far we can push you. How, uh, what is the, what, what is that experiment meant to gain for the Srivani? Because again, if it's Vidians, the Vidians can say, yeah, our lungs are failing because the phage will make that organ fail and we need a new one. If we don't get a new one, we will die, right? But in this case, it's just like, yeah, we just want to see what would happen if we just cranked up that uh, that level of dopamine in you. And to me, that isn't experimentation for medical benefit. It sounds more like they're just screwing with the humans for fun. 
maybe if we understood that, okay, there was a a specific goal here, like we need to get this information because we need to do this thing for ourselves. But maybe then that's part of the point of the show here is this is just a quest for quote unquote scientific knowledge and, you know, big scare finger quotes around that run amok. Mm-hmm. Where where there really there there isn't any sort of ethical or understandable goal with that. It's just we're just going to go take this knowledge because we can, and whatever the result is doesn't matter to us if people die. Even if they can tell us that they are dying, that they are uncomfortable, that they're aware of it, etc. We will keep doing that because we can. If you could communicate with a shark and say, hey, don't bite my leg off, that will hurt me and I will die. And the shark could understand that. Oh, wait, you're a speaking sentient being as well. I will leave you alone. That would be a different thing. We can't help but project our own human morality into yeah. our discussion. So that's, I mean, that's that's a given, that's a non-starter. Yeah. And that's the thing that's really difficult to kind of comprehend when it comes to, if ever we ever get out there, if ever, mm-hmm. you know, we encounter any kind of other life form. I mean, it doesn't even, you know, it just, that's what they do. And I understand folks, I'm like, no, Norm, how can you say that? How can you be on the side of wrong? I'm not on the side of wrong. I'm not on the side of right. I'm the side of, I'm just ta- arguing what is. Yeah. And it is very well possible that there are just species out there that just do what they do. And all we can do is say like, well, that's unethical, that's immoral, that is unlawful, but that's our constraint, that's our law, that's yeah. you know, that's our belief system. And if that doesn't apply to other races who don't believe that, then are their actions in fact immoral or unlawful yeah. or unethical, right? Yeah. And so. I think we were, we were kind of like getting – we got the tip of the iceberg of that conversation mm-hmm. in that scene in the brig. Yeah. But then but then you, you got to very quickly get to the bridge and, you know, get Janeway to fly the ship into a binary pulsar. <laughs> Let's uh, – we'll right. save that. Uh, but before we move on to our next section and our wrap-up, I, I do want to talk about uh, the name game here a little bit. Not the name of the episode, but the name of our aliens and how they don't have – names right and i kept saying the vidians as kind of a parallel because i think our understanding of them would help us in our understanding of these but we don't have a lot of understanding of the these three three vanis yes three vani <laughs> we don't have Bless a lot you. of understanding other uh, thank you <laughs> other than what they tell us to say eh, we're scientists we're, we're doing science you mm-hmm. think that's effective yeah i think kind of like the nameless, faceless, titleless aliens are kind of, they're effective in, in one way, but they're, I think they're also ineffective in another way. So let me put it this hmm. way. Okay. When you saw the Borg for the first time and they didn't have a name, they were terrifying. You give them the yeah. name Borg, they're even more terrifying. But mm-hmm. as time goes on and they evolve, they become less terrifying. And their name now has become synonymous with not as what they were before. So when you give something a name, it gives them kind of like a, a focus. We get, we get a focus from the naming convention. Mm-hmm. If they don't have names, they are this you know ubiquitous threat, just like any other alien threat. And they're scary, but it doesn't last. Because you're just like, oh, well, turn the next corner and there's another alien of the week. Turn the next corner and there's another mm-hmm. alien of the week. But mm-hmm. when you give them something like Species 8472, yeah. that turns that alien of the week into something that is far more memorable because not even only do they have a name, it's just a designation. So I, I think that 
we'll never really remember these aliens and their effectiveness, if you want to argue with that, mm-hmm. because we don't remember who they are. They mm-hmm. literally have no like uh, they have they have no defining quality aside from something that aliens do, and that's experiment on other aliens. But maybe that's the thing. Maybe that is the idea is that, okay, I'm not as concerned about the name. I'm not as concerned about the individuals involved or the motivation. It's just science run amok. It's this perversion of the idea of, well, experimentation can just mean anything because this species who we can't even talk to because we can't even call them by a name just impose their – perverted view of experimentation on us so what do we do other than well try to reason with them but you can't reason with them because we can't even call them by a name so we better fly the ship into a binary pulsar if you've been thrown into the brig aboard voyager your chances of being on the receiving end of a janeway lecture are rising exponentially by the minute So our hypotheses have been tested, and hopefully our conclusions will hold up. As the episode, Scientific Method, asks us questions such as, does the episode hold up? Or do we have any morals or meanings or messages that we have found? As we do at the end of Mission Log, we take all of our discussion, observations, and all the things that we've talked about, boil it into one beaker, and then pour it out for all of you (laughs) to dissect Let's see what we have come up with. Has so our scientific method We We, we held put up? it in the crucible. We turned on that Bunsen burner, and we're just going to get it down to the, the core. Just get it down to the bare essentials here. The nittiest um, of the grittiest of the brassest of Yes. Uh, does the episode hold up? I feel like this episode feels like a TOS or a TNG episode. This is the kind of story that would have worked with either of those crews very well. And that is a good thing in my book uh, when we're judging this particular outing of Voyager. You know, Voyager has the promise of being able to tell these other types of stories because you're stuck in one place with one ship. And that presents its own unique challenges. But if you're going to tell a story like this, where it's a one-off and it's these aliens who we'll probably never see again... It it just sort of it, it it scratches that itch where you just go like yeah this this could have been one of those other crews. In fact, I asked myself at the end like how would Kirk or Picard have dealt with the same situation? And I thought you know Kirk probably would have had an impassioned speech about morality, and that would have been backed up by a statement from Spock about how what the aliens were doing was illogical so they would have gotten out of it that way and picard probably would have also made a speech uh but it would have been more along the lines about their shared humanity and interests and they would have figured it out that way and janeway just straight up throws an alien against a wall see also cisco <laughs> so, true yeah cisco would have thrown her up against the wall <laughs> right yeah so uh, th- there was something fun just kind of playing through that here I think it was a production. Uh, this episode has a lot of those just moody, creepy, mystery-building, truly alien premise. You know, uh, it, it it falls in line with some classic sci-fi tropes about alien abduction and making us the inferior animals being experimented upon and poked and prodded. In, again, in the greater scheme of Voyager, 
it's not especially consequential, but it is a fun diversion, and I think the visuals are very cool. And I think Lisa Klink pulled a solid Twilight Zone feel from this one, and I'm I'm here for it. Now, of course, I do worry about uh, Seven of Nine being relied on too often as the one with the special powers to save the ship. But this is early in her run on the show, and maybe that will be less apparent the more we see of her. Don't know. So, yeah, I, I think it holds up by achieving exactly what it sets out to do, which is mess with our crew, turn the tables on the scientists, create some disturbing horror-like imagery along the way, and it's just kind of fun for that. So if that's what the episode is setting out to do, I think it accomplishes it nicely. So for me, it holds up. Uh, how about you? So are you saying that Seven is a deus ex Annika? <laughs> deus ex Annika. Yeah, yeah, You're she welcome. might be. She You're might welcome. be. That's, yeah. uh, that is very good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You know, I, I, think, uh, I think the episodes, it's a textbook solid episode, and I think it is in, incredibly good in, in terms of the consistency of being a Star Trek allegory, an allegorical show. But even as solid as it is, I think it is a little bit forgettable. I think that it's because the aliens are forgettable. And even though that for the episode, they may have had an impact, it's not a long lasting impact. So that's why I'm not going to say that it doesn't hold up. It just it holds up from when you're watching it. And it may just not hold up over time because it's forgettable in some equation. Um, well, but, but here's the thing, though. I think that for you and, mm -hmm. and you, you have implanted this into my brain now, too. It holds up because at the very least it answers this thing about Tom and Bellana. Well, so yeah. you, you will always be able to go back to this the longer right. we talk about the relationship. And you can say, well, I don't buy the relationship, but I buy that they were experimented upon by aliens and that forced it. It's kind of an 80-20 kind of thing. And, you know, and in that yeah, 80, yeah, you know, yeah. you had like really good character moments and, and character growth, you know, with Bellana and with Seven. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do uh, share your concern that if the writers write themselves into a corner, they can give, you know, Seven of Nine, you know, basically turn her into the Swiss knife, mm -hmm. army knife yeah. character and, you know, pry themselves out of that corner. Yeah. But I also like that they gave both of them that moment where Balana kind of passes the torch of wisdom to Seven saying that I was once the outsider mm -hmm. and now you're the outsider, but you don't have to be the outsider, which is nice. So that I think the episode started off very strong. Uh, I thought that, again, with the uh, insertion of the aliens of the week and being unidentified or kind of like being ambiguous, they could have, I think, been serviced better if this was like this cult sect of Vidians, you know, mm -hmm. who are a little mm -hmm. bit more extremist and a lot more in it for obviously, you know, their own self-preservation. So they even go further than what the normal Vidians that we've encountered before would have done. Yeah. Um, and, and in some way try and justify this because they are so far removed from their home world and their home world space that they need to do this in order to survive. That, that gives you, I think, a better kind of like a, a moral struggle with mm -hmm. what the aliens are doing and what they're trying to accomplish. And even maybe give it legitimacy saying that if we don't do this, we will die. And Janeway's like, well, you should ask us permission. And would you have mm -hmm. given us? No. Then we will die if we don't yeah, do this. Yeah, right, right. right. I feel like that would have been... Again, well, a great way to bring in an, uh, a former villain that we haven't had really any solid resolution on. And I think that would have been more relatable to us as the audience to be able to give this episode just a little bit more stake. Yeah. Aside from that, though, it's just 
again, it's it's a very good, very solid episode. And yes, John, I will I will uh, submit that now retconning Tom and Bellana's <laughs> relationship gives me a far more memorable experience than I had. Okay, there we originally. go. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> well, let's talk about messages, if there are any in this episode. I I do enjoy the uh, turning the tables on the scientific element here of this episode. The Sruvanian says, our techniques are as benign as we can make them. And yet, again, just telling Janeway, you know, we cranked up your dopamine levels because we wanted to mess with you. We wanted to see what would happen, you know. But the premise here that the aliens are, they're just scientists just doing their job of, as they say, medical research. But clearly, their definition of benign has some serious shortcomings. She says, the data we gather from you may help us cure physical and psychological disorders that afflict millions. Isn't that worth some discomfort? So is it just a matter of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few? Well, no, because mm-hmm. there is a huge word missing in the Srivanian language, which is consent, kind of like the Vidians, actually, bring them up again here. They may have benefited from a collaborative relationship with Voyager. Who knows that they forced themselves in without any attempt to communicate or collaborate. One of the great hallmarks of using the scientific method and I mean that lowercase, not in quotes, not the title of the show, but the actual scientific method, is that it it is self-correcting. It is a system set up to eliminate bias as best it can. But what science sometimes doesn't do, though, is account for the other impacts of research, the emotional and physical well-being of subjects or the long-term effects of a particular course of action. So what might be good for some may not be good for others. And we have to let our compassion and empathy steer us in ways that allow advancement to be counterbalanced by being good stewards of those around us. And I think we're a lot more aware of that these days than in decades past, but our tolerance also tends to swing on a pendulum. And it's all too easy to categorize others as less worthy when it suits someone else's goals. Uh, That's my little scientific soapbox there norm what about you what did you learn well i think we're like on a very similar page here and mm-hmm. i do like the the question that you have here of why did the uh, shrivani you know not collaborate you know with janeway and voyager and you know the people on that ship but i think that also has answered by what purely would be the scientific method of being dispassionate and being detached from the overall conclusion of the data that supports the theory or proves Mm -hmm. the theory. So maybe this Ravani were going to collaborate until they discovered that the crew on Voyager, mostly human, are just far too emotionally attached to Mm -hmm. what would have happened in their experimentations. And they said, no, in order for us to be able to achieve the truest pathway to scientific theory, uh, to our scientific method in proving what we need, we can't have them as part of that equation because they would basically create an unnecessary bias that would skew our data. Mm -hmm. Possibly, possibly. But, and I, I, I do, uh, I, I still hold to the, unless it happens to you theory, then we don't really think about the consequences of the scientific method. So, Let's go all the way back to why this episode is good. It's allegorical storytelling. That's Star Trek at its best. It presents Mm -hmm. a moral dilemma or a quandary that challenges our own deepest personal values. That's what Star Trek does when it's at its best. Mm -hmm. 
And I want to bring up another chunk of dialogue from Act 4 between Alzin, the alien leader, and Janeway. So Alzin says, Please understand that there is a purpose to our actions. The data we gather from you may help us cure physical and psychological disorders that affect millions. Isn't that worth some discomfort? You brought this up already. Mm-hmm. But Janeway says, I'm sure you'd see things differently if your people were the ones being subjected to these experiments. And Allison says, just as your perspective would change if your people were the ones to live longer and healthier lives as a result. Mm-hmm. This is where the until it, or unless it happens to you yeah. axiom comes. Janeway accuses the captured alien leader, Allison, of mutilating her crew. Allison's response to that, her response to that is it's necessary research for advancing their scientific findings. So as the audience, as we who have been raised on certain strict moral principles, whether they're religious beliefs of right or wrong or basic human laws, we're appalled that any alien race would have the audacity to to perpetrate these types of crimes upon Voyager without consent, you know, Mm -hmm. this helpless population Mm -hmm. of people. Until we realize that this is agorical to what certain examples of humanity have done since the beginning of time, to animal species and to other humans, whether for medical testing or genetic experiments, there are still those who at one time and still do advocate for causing illegal, torturous, and immoral genetic experimentation and mutilation as legitimate scientific advancement, right? Yeah. But, but if those experiments yielded, and they have, medicines and scientific data that currently help defeat or even wipe out entirely diseases that affect humanity specifically, well, do we just turn a blind eye to what was necessary to achieve these scientific advancements? I mean, how many sentient life forms on our own planet who were and still are unable to speak up for themselves and who suffer at the hands of these experiments which may or may not have yielded the results to benefit humanity, have suffered or been killed the exact same way and for the exact same reasons and for the exact same argument that the alien leader posited at Janeway. Yeah. I'm an animal lover. I will say that first and foremost. I have five wonderful furry children, and I can't say this loud enough, but for everyone in the back, please listen up. If a living being feels pain or experiences terror or fear, And then just because it can't articulate those feelings in a language we understand doesn't mean that their torment doesn't exist. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log... Year of Hell. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shadwell, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. Were these aliens a pain in the butt, or what? By the way, if they were a pain in the butt, I have more bad news for you and you should probably go to sickbay immediately. End transmission. 
This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.